Sometimes you need simple, great, affordable cards. And for that, go to supersimplecards.com. They've sponsored our World Cup road trip and they offer a great range of greeting cards for all occasions with simple, classy designs. So go to supersimplecards.com, buy yourself a pack of 6, 10 or 12 cards and never be caught short a greeting card again. And if you use the offer code WORLDCUP while purchasing, you'll get 10% off your order and free shipping. Supersimplecards.com. Get on them. It's the World Cup road trip and we're on the move again. Tony, England fans haven't come to Russia. There are hardly any of them here. Plenty of excuses, plenty of reasons. But if they're not going to come to us, stuff it. I'm going to go to them. They're playing Sweden on the weekend. I'll be in London when it happens. Francis, that's the whistle there. And France are through. Uh, Australia can now claim to have been competitive, more than competitive, against a semi-finalist, just as we can claim in 2006 to have been unluckily snuffed out by a World Cup winner. Such is the vagaries and the completely ridiculous lining up of sporting sides across tournaments like this. Um, France have won, better side, pretty flat semi-final. I sat there at 10pm thinking, do I watch a couple of episodes of Homeland and get ready for the France-Uruguay game, or do I go and catch five hours sleep and do Brazil and Belgium? And I've got deep regrets, Francis, deep regrets. I'm sitting here at the top of a hill, uh, of a mountain, Red Hill, not a very big mountain, and the wind is blowing and it's a winter's night and the fire is on and it is sort of quite moodily nice, but it's a mistake, Francis, it's a big mistake. I absolutely should have done the Brazil game because that game did not light up on any level. And my love for Mbappe, oh, it's been diminished. That was one of the worst simulations of the tournament, the lying down at that point in order to try to draw a yellow card. Just Neymar-like. Just not you too, is all I could think. It was that sense of disappointment when one of your favourites somehow diminishes. So it's France through, justly so. Been fantastic. I think uh, they're a real show from here. Obviously they're a show in the last four and your Uruguayans, I know you tried to adopt them, but I mind you, you're adopting every side, left, right and centre, Francis. We can't trust you and your um, your profligate affections. So um, I think, yeah, Uruguay gone. I'm not too sad. I miss Cavani. And, um, and France, a real show. I wish I had have uh, chosen Belgium, Belgium and uh, <laughs> Brazil. I'm going to watch it tomorrow morning on the replay. So, Tony, I've arrived in London in search of England's World Cup soul because they didn't turn up in Russia. And, you know, you can't escape football, and there's a certain irony to all this, but I just randomly booked an Airbnb. I knew that it was on the Fulham Broadway somewhere, so I knew it was approximate to Chelsea's home ground. I didn't know, Tony, that it was two doors down. In fact, I'm standing at the front now 
of the Britannia Gate after walking out the front gate of my little bolt hole at 436 Fulham Road. I'm sleeping in the shadows of Stamford Bridge. Ah, football. Even when you try to escape it, it follows you. Anyway, there's a vibe here. There's a vibe. I think they can win a ton. Well, Francis, don't know if you can hear that weather, but the story it's telling is you snooze, you lose. Because uh, I went to sleep after the game last night, um, the first of the quarterfinals. France getting home with the goalkeeping howler against the Uruguayans. And <laughs> I, uh, the house here is rattling under a storm. I wake up to watch the Brazil game, which is taped and ready to go. And, and um, no power. Power blackout. Um, and so I, I can't see it. I'm now on a, on a personal blackout in relation to social media and, and trying to avoid scores. Um, but, yeah, it's a really wild day up here and uh, very, very much winter and, uh, and, very, and very much a shame that I, not, I can't see the game. So I've ducked into to one of the bars on the high street here uh, for a beer because it's bloody warm. I was coming into London, everything was parched. It looked like an Australian summer. You could see the commons along the way from Heathrow, yellow, like they've been burnt by the Australian sun, and it feels really warm. So I've gone for a cold beer. They never quite do the beer cold enough here, Tony. East Coast IPA that I've got. Feels like it could be another degree or two colder to satisfy a thirsty traveller after a day switching planes and trains. And I'm, uh, yeah, it's in the heart of London, in search of an answer to your questions that you posed in our last podcast about why someone who is so enamoured with British culture and institutions finds their football team so hard to take. I'm going to try and answer that question while I'm here. We've got a number of theories. We'll get to the bottom of it. I might ask my good friend Daniel Norcross of the BBC Test Match Special I'm catching up with for dinner a little later on about his theory on why that might be the case. He's got a love-hate relationship with Australia in the same way that I have with Britain. So maybe we'll have some a detente, a Helsinki summit Putin-Trump style with, with Norcross and, and try to get to the bottom of things before the big game on Saturday when England take on the might of Sweden for a spot in the semi-finals of the World Cup. Everyone here is already counting the seconds until that happens. So, Tony, I'm at Rocker, which is on the old Brompton Road with my old mate, Daniel Norcross, superstar with the Test Match special team, once of uh, the uh, Test Match sofa. He's graduated to... He's become part of the establishment. Uh, <laughs> and I've, I've been talking to him about our my vexed relationship with England, and I'm glad to know that Dan kind of has the same relationship with Australia, but he also has the same relationship with the English football team. How are you, Daniel? Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling a little weird because this is the first World Cup, first... And I mean, you know, European Championship first tournament that the England football team has played in when I don't actually uh, despise all of them. Since, not, that's not totally fair, 1990. I love the 1990 team. You know, they cried. They had Lineker, they had Gazzo, Bobby Robson, Chris Waddle uh, going out on penalties in the semi-final. That's all honourable and noble and English. But this mob, do you know, 
I don't know whether it's because I had no expectations of them or whether they're younger or they're more grounded or they're just better at social media or they've got a manager who's really canny and knows how to manipulate the media but I just I find it strange I'm actually I like this team for the first time in my life I think, I think the sort of apotheosis of horror would have been the Fabio Capello team uh, when was that was that four years ago or eight years ago I that was 2010 2010 yeah, yeah I mean that was a team of just uh, uh, can I say dicks yeah. they just they just felt like abysmal dicks <laughs> and you, you just didn't you didn't really care whether they did well or not whereas I, I didn't really think I was going to care whether this team did well because I didn't expect them to because they're all, they're all too young they've all played for Rotherham or Sunderland uh, we're not going off class um, but I, I feel completely differently now. My whole, my whole brain has been changed by them. It's curious. I'm unnerved by the experience. I'm unnerved by just how much um, I feel an antipathy towards them. Because as you know, I love, I come here all the time. I love England. I love English music, culture. But I just cannot abide the English football team. My theory on it is, and this is how I explain it to myself, is that the best of the English experience is represented by its popular culture, its outward-looking view of the world, yeah. the institutions that it's given us. God, thank you, Mother England, for democracy and, and for, for the common law and all of those things. But the football team for so long has been an aggressive expression of a lost empire and, and a territorial, want, wanting to leave a mark that has already been lost, whereas the, those other elements were about expressing Englishness regardless of its position in the world. I know that's a bit ephemeral, but I always found them a little bit sad and a little bit frightening, and I can't... I, I just... And I, I have a, a sort of a, an affection for the English cricket team because they're not like that. It hasn't been like that. But the English football team and English football fans have always presented themselves almost a, as the last battalion of empire, and, I, and it really grates on me. I've got a theory on that, which I, which I, I say a theory. It's sort of supporting your theory. And think of it like this. Right? The English football team is almost entirely composed of people who have been brought up in difficult circumstances. Uh, they're usually from quite poor families. Uh, they're usually uneducated. And they've become incredibly wealthy footballers in England. But they're used to that underdog spirit. Now, the underdog spirit, we like, we like being an underdog. It's kind of charming and it's slightly self-deprecating. The problem with being an England football player is that you are the big daddy in the union. Scotland, Wales, Ireland and England. So these guys who want to have the, the glorious story of building yourself up from nothing to, to do this marvellous battle against all the odds are actually representing the oppressive centre of imperialism. England spreading outwards. You know, the Scots, the Welsh and the Irish can all be cheeky, can't they? They can all be cheeky and underdoggy and, and have their, you know, wondrous accents and be wry and sarcastic and, you know, and they can, they can kick eight lumps of crap out of people in a football field. We all go, oh, well, that's the Scots, isn't it? Great. When the English do it, it actually looks like brutal bullying and vicious behaviour. <laughs> so you've got this kind of essential dichotomy between the players themselves and what they think they represent in their own heads and what they're asked to represent geopolitically. And I don't think a lot of them are that clued up on geopolitics. Is that what I mean? I don't know. And it's not really their job to be. But it, it, as our meals arrive, I'll have the lasagna over here. Dan, Daniel's having the um, the rabbit, the rabbit, and we will 
Thank you. We love some Parmesan cheese. And just on that, it's interesting because at the same time, England has fallen in love with this team. But England's not at the World Cup, and I'm because there was no no British fans or English fans when the games I've been at. And, it feels like it's a home event now. People are at home. It's almost got a hint of Brexit about it. This is like the, the last stand of, the, of England in Europe. It's, it's, what's it been like being here for this? Well, yeah, firstly, on, on part of the reason why there are many England fans out there is one of the things that really I'd like to talk to you about later, if you, if you give me the time. We've got this notion, this expectation that Russia is a fiendish and dreadful place. They, uh, they, they poison us with Novichok. They, uh, thank you very much. They, uh, they, they, are unscrupulous with their bots. They, they fix our elections. They do all this kind of stuff, and also that their hooligans are actually even more vicious than ours. So, loads of England fans, I think, didn't go out there because they thought that Russia was somehow uh, uncivilized and genuinely dangerous. And the result has been that um, here, it's been well, all of those football fans have stayed at home, and they've got together in van parks they got together in pubs um, it, it's been a, it's been an unusual experience because it's not been universally brilliant I mean when it started we were thinking oh god we're not going to be any good <laughs> then Algeria you know we had a high point for six minutes we looked really really good but missed two chances thought, oh well same old this is just going to be a bit crap Panama sent everybody berserk the fact that you know they probably what fourth tier English sides <laughs> If that, I don't know. They're probably about as good as Halifax Town. But beating them 6-1 meant that suddenly we could believe in great things. That, 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 that curled goal by Lingard sent everyone berserk. So we had the lot then. We got Harry Kane. We got discipline. Um, we were in the right. And there's nothing English people like more than to be pure and bold and in the right. And so everybody sort of got behind them. Then there was a blip with Belgium because we'd already won the world. Once we'd beaten Panama... In England, we were now world beaters. And at the same time, we were transfixed with terror. Do we dare lose to Belgium deliberately so that we get an easier half of the draw? Do we dare beat Belgium and have to play Brazil really early? So actually, we spent most of our time trying to work out tactics of how you could get away with, like not winning a game, but at the same time maintaining this curious thing Momentum. I don't know how the momentum works when eight members of your side have been taken out. <laughs> it turned out basically the Belgians did the same thing. We played a game of chicken and we won <laughs> because Belgium lost. Any one of penalty shootouts, so it's all heading the right way. I'm going to resume this conversation in a moment, but your dinner is there waiting for you to eat it and my lasagna is as well. They don't do great lasagna in Moscow, so I'm going to enjoy this. We might talk some more in a moment. So we've just finished our mains. <laughs> Daniel, how was that uh, that rabbit ragu that you had? Well, it was all the filling actually. The rabbit itself was delicious. It was tender. Um, I do like I do like a wild rabbit. I think I'm basically like eating children's pets. <laughs> now, there's a butcher shop that really that's a corner of the market. In that, you would be a rich, rich man. Just before we get on with having a drink and having a laugh about life in general. When you look at Australia, your relationship with Australia, do you feel the same sort of sense of ambi- antipathy or ambiguity about it that I have with, with England? I mean, I love English culture. I love all those things, but I, I struggle with English sport. You, you have moments with us as well? Oh, yeah, we have moments. Um, I think what it is with Australia, it's the fact that everybody's all in it together. 
I mean, I went down to Down Under to do the Ashes, and it was a fantastic experience. I was there for 11 weeks. I loved it. I loved Australian people. I loved the time spent with them. But when it came down to the actual cricket, they all spoke as one when they needed to. You know, I mean, I believe when you lose, you're a lot, lot more fun to be around because then everybody just piles in and attacks the Australian team, yeah? But when you're all working together, there's a kind of sanctimony. I mean, there's all that stuff about, you know, weeping crocodile tears over the English team, you know, the kind of a really bad culture of boozing. And, and yet they came poorly out of one, mate. You know, you, you, you don't give me this crap. Um, so uh, th- that sort of hypocrisy can wear you down. But not really in the same way as, as what you're talking about. I think what you're talking about with the English is that there's a sort of sense of arrogant strutting. And this comes partly because if you can see our two nations as, as being linked by class, if you like, obviously a 1,000-year-old country that's had an empire is seen as, like, aristocracy. And you guys, who have got a, a foundation myth that's born on a convict past, are going to see yourselves as working-class larrikins. And as a result, you're defenders of truth and you don't brook any of this. You see the hypocrisy the other way around. And it's a different kind of hypocrisy. You see pomposity. And I get that, totally. I mean, I think that that's what the Scots, the Welsh and the Irish feel about the English. I think that's exactly that sort of thing. That, that is very unlikable. But Australian sports teams, no. I, I tend to read, I, I, I root for them most of the time. It sounds crazy. In a World Cup, That's I- a crazy thing because a lot of English people do and they get rather upset that when yeah. they meet someone like me and go, hey, would I support England in the World Cup? And I go, no chance. You're a little bit affronted at my absolute resistance. Yeah, I know. Yeah, well, we feel a little hurt because we don't understand. No, because we don't see it. We don't see it in ourselves, what it is that's so horrendous, you know. Um, <laughs> and it's not. I don't, I don't either, but it's something intrinsic in me. No, I get it, though. Yeah. I mean, there's every reason. Look, it's a little bit like, uh, you yeah, know, I have older brothers. That the moment they start talking uh, at family gatherings, they're always right, aren't they? And you can't get a word in. And if you try to, then you're always patronised. And it just drives you mad. And you just want to, like, you know, you want to just shut up, you know. And, and I get that. And I think that there's a little bit of that sort of going on. But the Australian football team, I mean, there's no way the English could not sort of feel slightly patronisingly sweet and tender about the Australian football team. I mean, they're, they're playing an 84-year-old up front. But well, they picked him, but they, they didn't actually let him out of the park, which was kind of sweet. Mr Burns was, was centre forward. <laughs> Mr Burns scale. So maybe, maybe, maybe it's just that love-hate relationship that kind of, you need a friction in that relationship yeah. anyway to make it work. Can I just find out, if England wins the World Cup, is that a good or a bad thing for England? Oh, man. That is the nastiest and hardest question I could answer. If you'd asked me that, because well, I've got to, you know, I've got to be honest with you, I'm, I'm a little bit of a sort of lefty. Really? Yeah, I veer in that direction. <laughs> so, you know, there was a time when I thought that it would have, it would have represented everything cool about England, about England sort of coming to terms with its past. If you had asked me this 15 years ago, I'd have said England winning the World Cup. Well, it couldn't have been like 15 years, 16 years ago. It would have been just what the country needed. Right now, I genuinely fear that it will confirm a series of jingoistic impulses that have come sprouting out of woodwork in England that are very unpleasant. I mean, England at the moment is a really strange place to be in. The, the good people are better than ever before. The bad people are worse than ever before. 
There is no nuance anymore. You either are or you are not. This is a binary country now currently living. So I don't know. I mean, I know that deep down, if it happens, I won't be able to help myself. I will go absolutely potty. I mean, I can't see how it can happen unless unless Belgium beat Brazil and then and then Brazil lose to, to who's left? Uruguay, Uruguay. If we play Uruguay in the final, we're in with a chance. <laughs> Trump is president. Anything is possible. Hey, I, let's get back to drinking and and, and bon Thank, and Thank good you. luck to England. And I'm glad I'm here. I'm glad you don't I'm mean here. that. I, well, I'm glad I'm here for this. <laughs> um, England didn't come to the World Cup, so I've come to England. And I'm, I want to enjoy Saturday for whatever happens. You're always very welcome here. And Francis. that's the thing. I just keep coming back, so it's more my problem than yours. <laughs> <laughs> So, Tony, just walking back uh, past Stamford Bridge on the way <laughs> to where I'm staying. Oh, the bitter irony of all of that. Literally, I'm going past the, the main entrance now after a great night out with Daniel Norcross. Trying to understand a little bit about the, the dynamic of where the English football team sits within English culture and why I have such a visceral reaction to it. I hope that gives you some sort of idea of where I'm coming from. But I'm going to be here for Saturday. And it feels like a royal wedding or some such British occasion. There's that sort of sense of expectation and pride about it. I wonder what's going to happen. It's going to be mega. Anyway, I'm going in now. I'm literally sleeping in a garden flat, which is in Roman Abramovich's, literally in his front yard. I'm not kidding you. That's it for the World Cup road trip podcast for tonight. Catch you soon. supersimplecards.com Get on them. This is Acast Recommends. Every week we pick one of our favorite shows and this is one we think you're going to love. I'm Molly Hockey. I'm an actor, writer, comedian. I'm 40, I'm single, and I'm trying to get pregnant, so I started SpermCast. I interviewed potential sperm donors, doctors, witches, scientists, surrogates. I did hilariously awkward home inseminations. I got pregnant. I had a miscarriage. I laughed. I cried. A lot. I got sperm from a sperm bank and started fertility treatments. Now here I am in season three. If you're pondering motherhood or in the thick of trying to get there, or if you just like comedy and watching a woman lose her ever-loving mind in real time, subscribe now to SpermCast. ACAST is home to the biggest podcast from the U.S. and around the world. Subscribe to this show and hundreds more now via ACAST or wherever you get your podcasts.